Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Tom Moriarty. Tom is the Executive Vice President, Chief Policy and External Affairs Officer and General Counsel at CVS Health, a Fortune 5 company, of course. Interesting fact, Tom and I both started our legal careers at the same time. Tom now, of course, is the uh, most senior uh, legal and policy and external affairs officer in a Fortune five company. I'm hosting this podcast, but it's not about me. This episode is all about Tom, his journey. And I have to say, just reflecting on the discussion, it really illustrated to me the kind of the style, the presence, the experience that it takes to be the most senior legal officer in a Fortune 5 company. He's got oodles of that and more. Uh, And the the thing that resonated with me the most is the impact that Tom has had a hand in playing, not only in his own inner circle of team and um, the people he's been working with, but more broadly than that, particularly in the recent circumstances of COVID and the role that CVS Health played in the in the broader community, the rollout of the testing and vaccination regimes, and the role that Tom specifically had in that. So, a really meaningful and impactful, a fantastic discussion. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Certainly, one of my favourites. So, in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Tom Moriarty, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. I'm super happy to be interviewing you. <laughs> Well, Jim, thank you so much and looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Now, Tom, you've had a pretty impressive career, if I have to say so myself. When I, when I look at your career, I think to myself, what have I been doing with my life? But I'm going to get you to launch in and tell me a little bit about the Tom Moriarty story and take me way back. How did you even get interested in law in the first place? Yeah, no. So, it, I mean, it's been quite the journey, Jim. It really has. And uh I don't underestimate the role of serendipity in my career. You and me both, Tom, let me tell you, you learn that as you get older. (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, listen, I'm first generation. My parents came to this country from Ireland. My mom was only 16 years old when she came, suitcase in hand, and education was underscored as we grew up and the importance of education and hard work. And I was lucky enough, you know, to go to a, a great college, Lafayette College, and then to a great law school, the University of Virginia. And from there, you know, I joined a large Wall Street law firm right out of law school. And I really wasn't happy. I I didn't feel I was getting great practical experience. I felt I was cog in a wheel. And I took what then was a very big risk. I went to a much smaller firm in New Jersey that focused on litigation. And right away, though, I was able to get into the courtroom, get my hands dirty, get real life experience. And that to me was invaluable. First off, to demonstrate if you take a little risk and smart risk, it can pay off. But then also, it's the importance of developing life skills, professional skills early on, because it serves you so well longer term. And then from there, just to show you how old I am, I answered a, a, a newspaper ad in the Help Wanted section of the New York Times for a job at Merck, Merck Sharp and Dome outside the U.S., and was lucky enough to get hired. And over a series of years, held a number of positions at Merck, both working domestically as well as working on international matters. 
And my last assignment at Merck was up to a company called Medco Health, which is a subsidiary that dealt in the pharmacy business management business and had a great experience there. And we ended up, you know, taking Medco public and then ultimately selling in 2012. And then I joined CBS and it's uh, the rest is history, I guess, as they say. The rest is history. Oh, I mean, it's a great story, and I love the first-generation story, too. I, that's part of my story, too. And if I actually look at when you and I both started working, I think it was the same year. So there you go. So any pivotal moments early in the career? I mean, I think you probably called out one, just taking the risk of moving away from a, to, from a, a major firm to a smaller firm. Any other kind of pivotal moments in that early stage, which really you think when you look back, you might not have known it at the time, you look back and you go, that was a bit of a crossroad for me. One of them was moving from, you know, the big established firm to a, a smaller firm, but it was the experience I, I received there. So I, I was lucky enough to work on a big piece of litigation at the time in the U.S., which was the transfusion AIDS cases and the risk of HIV transmission in the blood supply. And the legal issues there, the privacy-related issues, all, all of that fascinating, cutting-edge legal work. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that and, and establish, I think, some interesting precedent particularly in the privacy area. But what, what I learned was how societal issues and even political issues play into the legal system and that it's not always just about the law. And that was a very important early learning. And then when I joined Merck, it was the ability to practice outside the U.S. So to work on and represent subsidiaries in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa and learning that international exposure and that international experience has been invaluable as I go forward. And then probably the last leg of this was the first time I testified in front of Congress here in the U.S. And that is a, it's an interesting experience. It's a gut-wrenching experience, but it also sort of focuses your mind on the role that politics plays more broadly, particularly in this country, on business and, and, and on the law. Testifying before any kind of tribunal is an experience in itself, but I can, I can well imagine at being formative when you're testifying before Congress? I had a goal in my career to never testify in front of Congress, and I failed that. I failed that miserably. And with that kind of background, then you find yourself, you're at CVS, you're, you're a Fortune 5 company now, so you're EVP, Chief Policy and External Affairs and General Counsel. Tell me about what are the learnings you think before you got to CVS that kind of set you up to be able to take on this role? And what is it that you can only get, learn, once you're in the role in Fortune 5? Talk to me about those two things. Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. I think, you know, leading up to getting to CBS, some of the key learnings was really the, the intersection of, of law, policy, and regulation. And the earlier in your career, you, you appreciate that and understand that it's not just satisfying the government regulators, it's, it's appreciating and satisfying the non-government regulators, because the non-government regulators, whether consumer groups, you know, NGOs, whatever, they have as much, if not more say on who you are as a business, where you can go as a business. And again, learning how to navigate that early on, I think is critically, critically important. I think what, you know, you can only learn once you're in the chair at a role like CBS is the breadth and complexity of the businesses that we have and what that requires from a practice perspective. I mean, if you think about it, CBS has three separate Fortune 50 companies under one roof. So the level of complexities that brings with it, the intersections between those businesses and understanding that, that's only something you'll gain by sitting in the chair. So how do you get your arms around it? 
I mean, I, that just that, that that's making me fall asleep. Want to go tuck in a bed and, and just ignore it, forget about it, because there's no way I'm thinking how am I, how would I get my my head around that? And so, so you've been there, I think, nearly ten years. Was that part of the early challenge, just getting your arms and head around what what is it, and how am I going to manage all of this? Well, the, the transition CBS has gone through over the last two years has been very dramatic. So when I joined. We weren't nearly as large as we are now. We were big, but not nearly as large as we were. We were making a transition from what might be viewed as a traditional retail pharmacy company to becoming much more of a healthcare and healthcare services company. And that has been a, a 10-year journey, no question about it. But in terms of how you get your arms you know, around it, you really have to have a very good team. You have to have people that you can trust, people who have the experience to work with you and, and understand the issues that you need to deal with, how to deal with it, and embed themselves and integrate themselves into the businesses that they're serving. So you can't sit back as a standalone you know, legal department. You have to be at the table and fully integrated with those business teams if you're going to make a difference, particularly in the complexity of the businesses that we have today. And it's funny how the answer always seems to come back to, it's the people, because there's no way in the world that a single person can expect, you know, manage that level of complexity and detail. It is about the team that you build around yourself. And, and I always say, hire the right people and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Get the people a bit wrong and it gets really hard. Uh, absolutely. And, and don't be afraid. In fact, I encourage you to hire people who are smarter than you because it will pay dividends. It will pay dividends. Absolutely. In my case, not that difficult at all, Tom, but <laughs> not that difficult hurdle. So, so if you were to call out in, the, in your early time at, when you joined CBS what the key challenges were and then, uh, and the, I suppose, challenges and priorities and how that has changed over the time as you and the organisation have changed, can talk about that. So, so at, at, at kind of a company level, the challenges we were dealing with was, was that navigating the transition from being a traditional retail drugstore to becoming much, much more of a healthcare-centric, healthcare services business. And, and there were a lot of big decisions along the way there. Probably, probably the biggest was our decision to stop selling tobacco products in 2014. You know, that was some $2 billion worth of revenue and a, and a substantial you know, portion of, of, of profitability. And it, it really took a, a lot of work, not just with the management team, but also with the board to bring people along that this was foundational to our ability to move past and become much more healthcare centric. At the legal department level, it really was assessing the team that was in place at the time and making the determination whether in fact we had the right team in place to make the transition that we wanted to make as a company. And so, you know, we had to move some people out because I felt that they didn't have that. And we brought people in who I felt we could. I mean, our, our team is, you know, roughly about 260 lawyers, most of them with 15 to 20 years experience from a practice perspective. And we have anywhere from 36 to 40 different legal practice groups within that group, just to show you the complexity of the businesses and what, what's required to run them. And if you fast forward to now, what are the top of mind issues for you? What are your key priorities and what are you hoping in the next kind of 12 months or so? One of the key things is obviously talent development and talent retention. The competitive landscape in the U.S. in particular around healthcare care uh, and qualified people in healthcare is real. 
Uh, and the need to continually focus on that internal development, internal training, and making sure people have career paths to me is, is critical first and foremost. Then obviously we're very focused on diversity and the need to develop diverse talent, not just in the legal team, but across the company. And we have had over the last several years a big initiative with our outside advisors or outside law firms pushing that as well. And then one of the hats I wear is is really managing the brand and reputation for the company. And that in the current environment and in, in how divided we are as a country politically, socially, CBS has, we touch one in three Americans each and every year. So how we navigate the cross currents of the social political issues and where people see us and how they perceive us, it's critical for our success as we go forward. Let's do a bit more of a deeper dive there because I can see that and I know you're essentially responsible for legal, regulatory, brand and reputation. How are you going to navigate that key issue, those key issues that you're talking about? What are some of the strategies you're looking to put in place? Yeah, so this, this goes back probably to 2016 when we put these groups together. So I, I previously had strategy as well as being general counsel. And once we made the decision that we were going to do the Aetna transaction, and frankly, with, with the 2016 presidential, presidential election and what that brought, we had a conversation at the board level that we really needed to bring functions together to be able to manage our external messaging, our external position in a much better way. And that's why we brought the legal government affairs and policy teams, as well as our communication and public affairs teams together. And it's generated immense synergies because having these teams working together hand in glove and our ability to plan ahead and strategize, then also to respond very effectively as issues arise. I think we've done a very, very good job in that. And we see it in kind of the Harris Poll research that we track here again in the U.S., where we have been outperforming our competitors on brand reputation in a lot of the key categories and measurements. So it has generated an awful lot of uh, very good results for us over the last several years. And you talked a little bit about, uh, obviously, the, the importance of personal professional development, talent management, talent development. Any particular strategies that you're adopting there? Because I think, I mean, that's obviously top of mind. If you're going to keep and retain the best possible talent and get them growing, you need to create environments where they're, where they're learning, where they're feeling valued, and that they're feeling like they're making a real contribution. Nobody wants to work in a place where you're not, you don't have those things. We're talking about that, in fact, just with my team only a few minutes ago. A culture of trust, respect, being feel, feeling valued. You're making a contribution. Your voice is being heard. And you're growing, developing professionally. Any particular strategies, Tom, that you, you put in place with your team? Yeah, we have a few. First off, I mean, I, I think what has really benefited me over my career is, is the role that some mentors have had. I love, love discussions about mentors, actually. We have a very active mentoring program. And I think that it says a lot. And it's not just, it's not within your practice group. We deliberately pick somebody who's outside of your practice group so you can get a broader cross-section and frankly, a, a more complete view of what you may need to develop as an individual level or how you can make yourself valuable in the team effort. The other is the ability to identify project-based work that may be outside of their core skill set. And so you're not switching positions, but you're giving them an opportunity to participate in projects to expand their universe. And then the other is we have a regular kind of town hall team meeting type process where we will let people come in, in fact, encourage them and assign them to come in and either teach or present on 
a subject area that's not within their core skill set. So again, they're expanding their view and they're getting up on their feet. They're talking, they're developing that executive presence that you need, particularly in corporate America, that you really need to advance inside the four walls of CVS Health. And that's a bit about getting outside your comfort zone too. And the stuff that when you're doing that, you just hate it. It scares you. But unless it does, and unless you're really struggling, unless it does scare you, it's, it's hard really to get that growth, whether it's personal or professional. It's got to be, and I like the idea of giving people something which might not be right in their wheelhouse. It's outside, but it, because it does, it gives you that opportunity to, to, to push yourself to grow because comfort sometimes is the enemy of growth <laughs> and getting uncomfortable. Absolutely. And listen, I I can point to three or four instances in my career where that happened. And and one in particular was at Medco. I was head of strategy at the time. I had stepped out of the legal department and I was asked to head our global pharmaceuticals business. And when the CEO called me to ask me to do it, actually, he didn't ask me, he told me, I said, you know, Dave, my experience here is fairly limited. He said, well, you're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. And you'll drink from a fire hose for a little bit, but you'll get it and, and you'll figure it out. And sure enough, in about six months, I, I found my footing and, you know, we ended up growing that area of the company fairly substantially from where it was before. But if, if it had been left to me and my, myself with that, I probably wouldn't have done it. But you need a push. You, you do. And that, that is the importance of mentors, of sponsors, people who have had that experience themselves and know that typically it's not yourself that kind of put yourself in the uncomfortable position. It's got to be someone else that that persuades you, cajoles you, whatever it is, because they've been through it. They understand that you've got to get uncomfortable. And if you you, you do have the smarts and the ambition, you, you'll work it out. Yeah. And, and frankly, it's been one of my frustrations sometimes working with whether it was at the Medco legal team or even now at CVS, where there's an opportunity in front of somebody and they just won't take it because they, they can't get out of that comfort zone. And it's a frustration because it it will be career limiting. You have to expand your universe, your experience set, and your ability to manage different issues at the same time. And if you stay in your comfort zone all the time, that's going to be, you're going to be pretty limited in that skill set. Look, I I agree. Absolutely. And if that's one takeaway for the audience, it is, it is so easy to stay comfortable because it's warm and cuddly. (laughs) And, but when I look back and I think about, okay, what were the great things that, you know, which I think of, you know, whether crossroads or hallmarks, what I'm really proud of, it was, it's never a circumstance where I was really comfortable in an environment. And it was always something that I thought there was no way in the world I would be able to manage or pull off because I knew nothing about it. And that they are always the times that you go back and you think, that's what I'm proud of because it felt like I couldn't at the time. And actually building that level, I think, in, whether it's in your children, whether it's in team members, that resistance and that, the ability to feel okay if you fail too. And I know there's this mantra about fail fast and so forth. I don't think it's so much about that. I saw something quite recently about if you haven't been rejected or said no to, or or then you, you're not trying hard enough. If you don't have a bunch of rejections from the applications you're making, or I said to my youngest, if you don't have, don't be proud that you've never been rejected from a job position. That just means you haven't tried enough. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's too true. It's so true. Tell me about the some re- recent challenges. We've all undergone, of course, the last 18 months since March last year, a massive transformation. Just before we started recording, you talked about 
you have 300,000 employees, 200,000 CVS that are essential workers, so about 100,000 who moved to remote and by and large, it sounds like they're still remote. Tell me about some of those challenges and perhaps a little bit about what, what you think the future might look like for working. Yeah, so I mean, you know, when the lockdown, so to speak, hit here in the US, I mean, we literally overnight took uh, 110, 120,000 of employees, moved them out of offices into home. And so just just simply the technology and bandwidth to be able to do that, I, I give so much credit to our IT teams where they had, you know, had this vision already, not for the pandemic, obviously, but the need for bandwidth and flexibility so that we we're able to do that in almost a seamless fashion. But then also for our colleagues who are working in our pharmacies, working in the warehouses, going into homes each and every day to deliver care, we had to ensure that they were protected as well. And their safety was kind of job one for us. So, you know, securing uh, PPE, all the necessary protective equipment and other things that you need for that. Then we played very much a leadership role in the United States in rolling out COVID-19 testing. And today we're doing some 70% of all COVID-19 testing being done in retail settings across the country. And the role we've played in the vaccine rollout, whether it's through the nursing homes and long-term care in the first phases or to the rollout and you know the first doses and now into boosters, we're administering well north of 20 plus percent of all vaccines uh, in this country through our colleagues and the role that they're playing each and every day in our pharmacies. So it's been a tremendous lift and the teamwork across the enterprise has been really something we're pretty proud of. uh, And I I personally have been very, very impressed by. I can just well imagine, I mean, take yourself back to let's say February last year. And if you'd said to yourself then, here is what we are going to achieve in the next 18 months. It's almost unfathomable that you would say, yeah, I, I can see we, we, we can do that. So you must be proud because I think if you'd, if you'd thought about that at, at that time, there's no way in the world you could think you'd be able to deliver. What was it? What are the key, is it, is it back to team? How did you manage to get to achieve what you have achieved and what the organisation has achieved in, in the time since then? Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. First several weeks of the pandemic, you saw a lot of panic buying and other things. So our, our sales were through the roof. And then once you got past that sort of panic buying phase, things just, you know, flattened, almost flatlined for a period of time. And there was almost a shutdown kind of uh, in, in the overall system. And it took a lot for the management team because when we were called by the administration at the time, to take a role in COVID-19 testing and rolling that out. It took a lot of ingenuity and thoughtfulness about how we leveraged our footprint across almost every community across the United States. And I give credit again to the management team because we were able to take things like, we have drive-through pharmacies, windows here in the United States. We were able to build a testing system where you didn't have to come into the pharmacies. We could leverage it through the drive-through And that way you avoided physical contact and everything. And it became the model for testing in the United States as we went forward. And then with the vaccine rollout, uh, our ability, because we have a history of doing vaccines, but the scale that was needed to do it here in the United States, we have more than 30 plus thousand pharmacists, you know, some 11,000 nurses in our system. We have the ability to do uh, 40 million vaccinations a month. That's, That's the capacity we have. And so our ability to roll that out, leverage our existing footprint and infrastructure, and then engage our colleagues, because that's equally important, that was really a management focus throughout the entire pandemic. 
any lessons around there? In particular, what would you do differently? What did you do? Was a time that you'd spent on things that were, were just time not well spent or things that you're worrying about that in ended up didn't deserve that much attention? A, a, anything on reflection that you think, well, yeah, that, that you learned? No, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's in, it would be kind of, um, you know, things maybe that we shouldn't have done, but maybe where could we have moved quicker? Where could we have acted more quickly? And I think, you know, there are a few things there that we've reflected on and looked at now, you know, just reflecting back, how could we? So that so next time we need to move more quickly, we're breaking down silos. And so some of that reflects in our need for changes in law and regulation here, because there's almost an antiquated regulatory structure around pharmacists, what pharmacists and pharmacist technicians can do, what nurses and nurse practitioners can and can't do. And COVID really shown the light on that. And we've received temporary reprieves from that by working with the Secretary of Health and Human Services, but they need to become permanent because we need to become much more efficient in this country around healthcare delivery. And the assets are there. We just need to allow the regulation to let these people do do that job. Let's go back to back to the legal team and t- tell me what, what are the challenges you see for the running of a legal department over the course of the next few years? What, what's on the horizon for you? What do you think? What role perhaps has technology played? Talk a little bit about that. I think the challenges as you move forward are, are, they almost mirror what we see in our businesses. Healthcare is becoming so much more complex uh, the regulation around it, the oversight around it is becoming that much more complex. And our need to look around the corner and get ahead of that as a team, to me, is critical. And so, again, it's it's talent management, it's talent development, but it's also becoming more efficient at how we do things because the cost structures are such that you're not going to be allowed to keep adding people in. You're going to have to find a better way to do things. And that's, you know, that's something we spend time on a lot with my leadership team is where do we drive our effort? Where do we put our focus and make sure our colleagues are growing at the same time that we're driving what the business needs? A little bit about team too. I mean, it's always about the team. Thinking about when you're hiring, one of the hardest things I think is to hire and hire really good people. What do you look for when you're hiring people? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's, you know, relevant experience, right? You want to make sure that somebody's coming in with a relevant piece of experience. But the other part is what we've talked about a little bit earlier is I like to see a little bit of risk taking on the resume, right? And folks who weren't afraid to try something different or step out of even even out of the legal area to try different roles. I mean, I've been lucky enough in my career where I have left the legal department and taken on fairly significant business roles. I probably learned more doing that that has helped inform the type of lawyer I am today. And so seeing that on a resume also is really important. And then the last part is, it's the interpersonal side. You know, how do they engage? How do they interact? Do we feel, do I feel that they're going to be able to sit at the table with with the business folks and have an engagement that's going to add value, not just for the business team, but then back back into the legal team as well? So those are probably the three most critical things that I look for. And when I think about that, that first one, you, do, you know, you naturally go to that relevant experience. I do wonder sometimes, I think I've been hamstrung in the past by that because it's actually conflicted with the, with the other thing you talk about, personal growth. It's more about has this person do, done the kind of or worked in the kind of way that I think that they're going to be able to grow 
and and handle the problems in the particular jobs to be done that I'm looking to get done now. Because it's funny, I remember in one of the early interviews that I had with my guests, and they talked about recruiters looking for people with exactly the same domain experience so they can move, you know, healthcare or whatever it might be. And it was Cam Finlay, and he has said, I think that was the wrong question because you're looking for people who can adapt and who can take the experience they've had and they can apply it to a different industry. So it's, I reckon it's a real balance between that if they get the real experience but or do they have the capability to learn what's required and then continue and get the jobs done in that particular. And so I, th- I think when you look at that, I agree with that completely. Probably the two spectrums where you can have more flexibility applying that is where it's someone who's already in the legal group who you know and, and you trust and you want to move them into a different experience where area or practice where they don't have it, but you know they're, they're smart and they work hard and that. And then the other is earlier on in career right, where we want to bring someone in knowing full well that we're going to be training them. And we've given a lot of thought and actually have started to do this where we've done away with the sort of historical, you need five to seven years of practice before we'll even look at you. And we've actually hired as as early as two to three years out now. And we may even start going to first year out because we're doing so much more of the training ourselves than we're seeing the law firms give even in five or seven years of practice at a law firm. That's really interesting too, isn't it? Because it was the kind of the paradigm example. You took someone who'd had big law firm experience because typically that was the best kind of experience you can get and then you were able to work with that experience. But I'm, I do wonder whether that's going to continue to be continue being the, you know, the, the, the pool that you're looking from because I'm not so sure. No, and, and honestly, that, that relevant experience quotient, you're probably, if you're at one of the big firms, you're probably early on not getting that relevant experience. You're going to be a, want to be at a smaller firm and a, a, maybe even a specialty firm to demonstrate that portion of it. And that, that's where I think, and frankly, that's, that's how I got hired into Merck. The person who hired me had a relatively similar background. He started a big firm, didn't like it, went to a smaller firm, and he, he saw that on my resume. That's why I got pulled out, at least to be interviewed. So it is that relevant experience you may not be getting at the, at the big law firms. So, Tom, tell me, what's the hardest thing you've done in your professional career? You know, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, as I reflect on it, probably the hardest thing was the decision that we made as a management team at Medco Health to sell the business with, with our board. We had built a very, very successful business. And but seeing where the market was going and, and how we could get the best value for our shareholders, we made that decision. And, and I'll never forget the the flight back from St. Louis, Missouri, we sold to a company that was based there. Our CEO and, and I were uh, by ourselves on the flight back uh, the, the morning that we announced the deal publicly and after the press and all the rest of that stuff. And that was probably the you know the quietest flight uh, I ever had in my career because we were just reflecting on you know what it could have should have. And but we we knew we did the best for the shareholders, but it was but it was bittersweet, no question about it. Yeah. And presumably, Tom, that means you know, most of the people, the executive team, yourself, you, 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 you out, of jo- out of a job and, and a lot of the leadership team and the people that you, you'd, um, part of your team. Are, and uh, so I assume that's why, that, that's why it was so hard. 
Yeah, and, and it was. We you know, obviously you care an awful lot about the people you work with and and the careers you develop. What's been been a very nice result though coming out of it is pretty much everyone has found even more senior positions in healthcare and the Medco alumni across the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, they're pretty active to say the least. So it's 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 very great to see. And, and there's there's nothing better is there than people that you have worked with, helped, mentored, and then you see them grow and flourish in their own careers, there is, I think there's very little that's more professionally satisfying than that, the impact that you've had on others and, and, and watching them grow. I couldn't agree more, Jim. They're, they're, it really, you know, it's it's a great demonstration of both talent development, but also keeping friends friendship as well. So I think it, 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 it's a great result, great result. And I've said before, it's, you know, when you're when you're reflecting on what you're proud of, it's never the stuff about me <laughs> and what what you do. It's always the the impact that you have on others and the the careers that you help build and develop. That's the stuff that um uh, that stays with you. Absolutely, Tom. Anything that you spent too much time worrying about in the past, which uh, on reflection was not time well spent. Yeah, you know, early on in your career, and frankly, even in, in the mid stage of your career, you're you're always worrying or focus on, you know, am I positioned the right way? What are people thinking about me? Am I making the right right impression? And I, you know, on reflection, I, I know I spent way too much time on that. And if I uh, if I had not done that, I, I, I may have been able to spend more time with family or more time on uh, clearly a lot more productive things. But uh, if there's any advice I can give someone is is don't worry so much about that stuff. Just, you know, continue to deliver value and, and develop good relationships and it'll all work out. And look, that's a common theme and I hear that a lot and I had it with myself too. And I, I hear the advice too that that stuff is, you know, you don't need to worry about that. I just wonder whether it's just a natural part of what you do when you grow and you, uh, you're striving to get the best out of your career. I just almost wonder whether it's inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> it may be one of the attributes of success, right? <laughs> yep, that, that's right. Any advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self other than not not spending so much time worrying about that stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, on, on some levels, you know, if there's any reflection, it, I, I, wish, I wish I had taken a little bit more risk, and, you know, particularly on the business side. And, you know, listen, I, I, I've had a great career. I've, I've done an awful lot on the business side as well. But I think if I had done a little bit more, I may be even a, a better counselor, a better advisor than I am today. And I would encourage uh, colleagues across, you know, listening to this, Try to get those broader experiences because they really do pay dividends longer term. Yeah, and again, if I think about, you don't hear too often someone saying, um, reflecting on a career, I took too much risk. It's usually the stuff that they haven't tried, the what ifs I had, not not I shouldn't have done that. So it's the usually it's the missed opportunities I think that burn more than the tries but didn't work that I think stay with us. I think so. I think so. Tom, it's been fantastic having you as a guest. I've really had a great time. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed it, Jim, and, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit.com. P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.